Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to do part two on our discussion with hematology and specifically the coagulation process in our bodies and how our bodies find that fine balance between keeping blood in plasma form versus creating a clot to prevent excessive bleeding, but also being able to break down that clot to limit the risk of stroke and ischemic events from clotting off uh, the vessel to provide blood through to different tissues. So it's a really fine balance. And if you did not catch our part one, I really encourage you to go back and do that because today we're going to basically assume that everybody has listened to that, understands the basic physiology behind the clotting cascade, the coagulation cascade, all the clotting factors that are associated with that. And today we want to specifically go into what type of diseases can alter that pathway. And so it's important that whenever you're going to be taking care of a patient in the operating room, that you do a thorough preoperative assessment to determine if they do have any of these diseases. So you need to check, do they have any altered bleeding, such as just weird bruising patterns, throughout their body? Is there vitamin K in good level? If you remember, vitamin K is needed for factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. And so if we're not having enough vitamin K, the body is not going to be able to produce enough of those 2, 7, 9, and 10 clotting factors in that coagulation cascade. How are their PTT levels, PT levels? Are they on a heparin or an aspirin medication or any other type of blood thinner medication? Again, go back to that first talk that we did to understand some of those different medications and where they will affect the clotting cascade. But it's just really important to take a look if the patient is on these, have they stopped them at the appropriate amount of time? If you remember, if someone's on Plavix, something that's going to inhibit a platelet receptor, that's going to be more like seven days you need to have them off of it. Whereas you might have heparin, which depending on the dose, if you're giving it IV, can only be a few hours off of it before they're good for surgery. So it's just really important to know the, the time frames for each drug and just what drugs patients are on that can affect their bleeding throughout a case. So Tanner, do you just want to go in now with um, starting with some of the different diseases that we can have that's going to alter this coagulation cascade? The first thing we want to talk about today is HIT. This is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So this is an immune response when you are giving somebody heparin. Again, we talked about this on our last episode, so you can go back and listen to it there. But here, we'll just briefly summarize it. Type 1, heparin will cause the platelets to aggregate. Type 2 is different. It's where the body releases IgG antibodies, and that will activate platelets and cause a ton of plugs to be formed. But the platelet count will actually fall because they're not able to make enough new platelets in the time that that's causing all these other platelets to form all these different plugs. Type 2 is what you're really concerned about. That's going to be a worse patient picture. So with either of these, you need to stop heparin immediately. You'll want to give anticoagulants with thrombin inhibitors. To test this, you will use a C-serotonin release test, and that will give you the definitive diagnosis. If you have somebody with HIT, you can give them other things. Argachapan is a really uh, common one that I saw in the ICU. If somebody had a history of HIT and they couldn't have heparin, obviously, then you could give Argachapan. So there's other options available. But again, this is something that you need to be aware of when you are giving heparin. Make sure you keep an eye on those platelet levels. If those decrease drastically, then you need to be thinking HIT. So next we want to talk about hemophilia A and B. So hemophilia A is a X-linked disorder in which factor eight is going to be deficient in the body. 
So because it's X-linked, it's going to be more common in males. And again, you just have a lower amount of this factor eight. So if you remember, factor eight is going to be more in your intrinsic pathway. So which bleeding test is going to be increased? The PTT. Exactly. So if you remember, PTT is longer than PT. So PTT is with the intrinsic because intrinsic takes longer than the extrinsic. That's how I remember it at least. So PTT is going to be prolonged because we have a factor eight deficiency and that intrinsic pathway is going to be slower then. So how do we correct this? Well, you can treat with fresh frozen plasma. So if you remember, fresh frozen plasma basically just provides the body with all those coagulation factors. So you're going to be increasing your amount of factor eight. You can also give more specific forms such as cryoprecipitate, which contains fewer of those coagulation factors, including factor eight, which is why we can give cryo. You can also give desmopressin, which you remember desmopressin is involved with von Willenbrand factor. And we'll talk about that here in a second, but basically increase the amount of von Willenbrand factor that the body is producing. And this carries the inactive form of factor eight. So indirectly then it's going to increase factor eight. Hemophilia B, this is factor nine deficiency. So A is factor eight deficiency. B is factor nine deficiency. So again, nine is in the intrinsic pathway. So this is going to, again, prolong your PTT. So your PT will be normal in both of these. It's just your PTT that'll be prolonged. So in this case, to treat it, you just do the same thing we did in hemophilia A, but we're going to be giving the body more factor nine. So in this case, desmopressin won't work because it doesn't have anything to do with factor nine. So you're going to have to use your fresh frozen plasma here to provide all of those coagulation factors, including factor nine but it's not specific for just factor nine, such as the factor eight when we could give desmopressin or cryoprecipitate. So that's the difference here is you're going to have to do just FFP to increase this factor nine. So piggybacking off of that, let's talk about von Willebrand disease. So this is the disease where your platelets are not functioning properly. Remember that von Willebrand factor is what is going to connect your platelets to the damaged endothelial layer. So that'll be like your collagen that's exposed. The von Willebrand factor will be the connection between that and the platelets. So there's several different types here. You have type one, which is just a decreased amount of von Willebrand factor that is being produced. You have type three, which is where none is produced. Or you have type 2, where you are still producing von Willebrand factor, but it doesn't work. It's not functional. Von Willebrand factor carries with it an inactivated form of factor 8. This is what Cole was just talking about. So with von Willebrand disease, you will also see a reduction in factor 8. As a result, we just talked about this, you will see a prolonged PTT because factor 8, we're talking about the intrinsic clotting cascade. So your PTT and bleeding time will be increased. To treat this, like Cole mentioned, you can give desmopressin. This will cause the body to release more von Willebrand factors. So this works in patients if they have just a decreased amount of von Willebrand, or if you can't produce this, then this will work in those patients. If they are type two, so where they're still able to produce von Willebrand factor, but it's dysfunctional, then giving desmopressin is not going to work because it'll just cause them to produce more of this dysfunctional von Willebrand factor. So in those patients, what can you do? You can give cryo, or you can also give von Willebrand factor and factor eight mixture. So next let's talk about sickle cell disease. So this is where you're going to have a alteration 
in the hemoglobin S molecule, which causes the red blood cells to have this altered sickle cell shape. So this allows for multiple red blood cells to basically become lodged in small vascular spaces. So if you think of a normal red blood cell being this nice round cell that can just flow through, and then you have this kind of weird shaped sickle cell red blood cell that isn't that smooth roundedness, it can kind of get lodged and wedged in with other of these weird shaped red blood cells and basically form a clot, if you will, of all these red blood cells coming bunched together. So why this is an issue is, well, you're going to have all of these small little blockages being formed by these red blood cells in the microvasculature, and it's going to prevent adequate perfusion to these tissues. And so you want to keep these patients away from triggers that are going to cause more of these cells to be bunched up. Triggers being pain, acidosis, dehydration, hypothermia, hypoxemia. Those are some big ones to name a few. So we really want to make sure we're trying to keep patients hydrated. If you're putting more fluid into their vascular space, it almost, in my mind, gives the sickle cell, red blood cells, a little more bounce in that fluid and a little more volume to wiggle around that doesn't become lodged with other ones. What's interesting here is that the spleen usually breaks down red blood cells and the typical lifespan of our blood cells, about 120 days, the body naturally tries to break these down and get them out of the body faster, which is a good thing in our case here, because we don't want them staying around and becoming lodged in different places. So the body usually breaks this down around 15 days after they're made and then removes them from the body. The problem though, is if a patient is having all these sickle cell red blood cells being removed, it can cause some anemia. And then you're going to have some more hypoxia, which is then a trigger for the sickle cells to become lodged. So that's kind of, as you can see here, a downward spiral, if you will. So we just need to be careful when you have a patient with sickle cell disease, when they come in, that you're making sure they're hydrated, you're not letting them be acidotic or in pain, and that you also check to see what their hemoglobin level is. They may be anemic prior to going back into the operating room. The other thing here is be cautious in patients that have sickle cell disease when you're using a tourniquet. So if you're going to be doing any type of procedure that has a tourniquet involved, what you're going to be doing is creating a lot more lactic acidosis buildup and CO2 buildup in that extremity. And then you release that tourniquet and that goes to the rest of the body. And again, those are just triggers for causing this sickle cell disease to get worse. So just keep that in mind. The next thing we want to talk about is DIC, and this is where your systemic coagulation process is basically overstimulated by releasing lots of tissue factor. If you remember, tissue factor was very instrumental in starting your extrinsic clotting cascade. So even if there isn't any injury, then this tissue factor is still being produced. This is going to cause lots of clots to form, lots of fibrin clots, all of it. You typically see this in patients with sepsis, cancer. You can see it when you have an OB patient who has an amniotic fluid embolism or a placental abruption. Really where this goes very quickly is that you have all these microclots developing and then these will become lodged and you're not getting adequate perfusion to these different tissues. And so then you can have hypoxia, drastic acidosis. So that's really your first problem is that you're dealing with this tissue hypoperfusion. Then what your problem is, is that you've basically used up all of your materials that you need to make these clots. So you've used your clotting factors, your fibrinogen, your platelets, 
And now the patient is just bleeding like crazy because they can't form any clots. And so this is when you see your patient just start oozing like everywhere, or, you know, around IVs, their eyes, nose, ears, every little part of their body that can bleed, you'll start seeing these little micro bleeds that will not be able to stop basically because we've used up all these clotting factors. The PT and PTT will both be increased and there will be an increased D-dimer due to the body's releasing TPA and urokinase to activate the plasminogen to break down the tons of clots that are formed. Other things that you'll see is you'll see a decrease in fibrinogen and you'll also see a decreased level of antithrombin as well. So to treat this, you need to treat the underlying cause in the short term, you need to treat by replacing all of the materials that are basically depleted. So you give FFP, you give platelets, cryo. You also know that there is severe hypoxia and acidosis. So you're also giving heparin to try to break down these clots. You could also give protein C and antithrombin to patients who are very septic. And so this is tricky because like we talked about at the beginning of this, your first problem is tissue hypoperfusion and acidosis from all the clots being made. Your second problem is that you are bleeding because you don't have any of these factors needed to make clots. So you need to kind of treat both sides of this, giving these clotting factors back, and then also trying to give heparin and try to break down these microclots that are forming throughout the body. Great. So if you're still with us, we have one more we want to go over. This is protein C and S deficiency. So protein C is basically used in the body to block factor five and eight. So this is really a anticoagulant picture here. It's, it's blocking this coagulation cascade by blocking factor five and eight. Protein S augments protein C's effects. So in essence, S just helps C do its job better by blocking factor five and eight. As a result, if you have a deficiency in any of these, we're not going to be able to block 5 and 8 and keep them regulated as well. So more clouds will be formed because factor 5 and 8 won't be inhibited as much. Hopefully that makes sense. So if we have a deficiency in these proteins, we're going to be forming more clots in the body. As a result, you need to be on a blood thinner. So typically you see these patients on warfarin in order to block the coagulation process as it goes through because there's going to be more factor five and more factor eight that are going to be activated to cause a clot. So it needs to be inhibited in that pathway by being on warfarin. Hopefully that makes sense. So it's kind of the opposite of what we've been talking about here. Protein C and S block this process. So if you have a reduction in there, that means you're going to be forming more clots. And just to wrap this up here, some of the main things that we gave, we've talked about, I just want to make sure it's understood clearly. FFP has all clotting factors. So usually you're going to give FFP when you have a PT or a PTT that is 1.5 times above normal. When the INR is elevated enough that you need to quickly get it back down rapidly. And when there's lots of uncontrolled bleeding. Additionally, like we talked about earlier, you can give it to reverse warfarin quickly. So if you have a patient that has a long PT, which is the extrinsic pathway, and they're on warfarin, you need to get that PT down quickly and they're bleeding uncontrollably. 
well, you can give vitamin K to reverse that, but it's going to take a long time to kick in. So that's when you can give FFP to just throw the body all those clotting factors it needs in a really quick manner, and that'll help kind of solve that issue. You can give cryoprecipitate when you have more specific things you're trying to treat. So FFP has all the clotting factors. Cryo specifically has factor 8, 13, von Willenbrin factor, fibrinogen, and then fibronectin. So you want to give this when any of those are low. So you can also give FFP for that to treat any of those. But if you want to be more specific, that's when you can use cryo. Hopefully that makes sense for the difference between those two and some of the different disease processes that you can see in this coagulation cascade. This is by no means all the different disease processes, but this is just some of the main ones that we feel like are important to know and understand in order to provide care to these patients.